Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 946615, Thompson against Culhane. Ready, Mrs. Sullivan. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. The Alaska Trial Court rejected Petitioner's challenge to the admission of his confession under Miranda v. Arizona, holding that Petitioner was not in custody for Miranda purposes and therefore was not entitled to warnings prior to the interrogation that yielded his confession. Petitioner was convicted, exhausted his state remedies, sought a writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court for the District of Alaska, and was denied relief. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit affirmed, holding that the State Trial Court's conclusion that Petitioner was not in custody constituted a finding of fact entitled to a presumption of correctness under Section 2254D of Title 28 of the United States Code. It is that ruling that we challenge here. In a case where all the historical facts are conceded, the application of the objective Miranda custody standard to these facts constitutes a mixed question that should be reviewed de novo under this Court's decision in Miller v. Fenton. The Miller decision controls here. If one examines the process by which a custody determination is made, this is a statute we're construing. And the plain language of the statute requires on its face that the presumption of correctness only apply to issues of fact. Now, in construing what comes to the actual statutory language is factual issues. Yes, Your Honor. I apologize. In construing what constitutes a factual issue for purposes of Section 2254D, the Court has looked to the traditional distinction drawn between issues of fact, law, and mixed questions in Townsend v. Singh, the decision from which Congress drew the presumption codified in Section 2254D. Thus, in a series of cases, the Court has applied the Section 2254D presumption to questions of historical fact. In Justice White's words, who did what to whom and when? Are you suggesting it hasn't gone beyond that? Yes, Your Honor. How about cases like Maggio and Russian, Patton v. Yount? Surely they're just more than strictly historical fact is involved there, isn't it? Your Honor, I do not believe so. Those cases, the juror bias, competency, and intent cases, constitute cases that look nominally like mixed questions, but essentially the Court, in reducing what constitutes the legal standard in that case, has reduced them to questions of historical fact concerning the state of mind of a particular actor. In such circumstances, Your Honor, there is no real mixed question for purposes of Section 2254D. Once one has applied the Section 2254D presumption to the historical facts as found by the district court, there is no second step. There is no need to apply the legal standard to those facts. There is no legal component to the mixed question. What about an issue that turns on a reasonable person standard? Does that of necessity amount to some kind of mixed question? Yes, Your Honor. It's our contention that the first step in the process, the determination of historical facts, would be accorded a Section 2254D presumption of correctness. Well, in the negligence context, do we 
treat it really as a question of fact for a jury? Your Honor, I believe in the negligence context, the question of whether uh, how a reasonable person acted really is a mixed question, and it asks for a legal determination. But we don't treat it that way, do we? No, that's correct, Your Honor. It is um, generally given to the jury to decide. However, as this Court held in last term in Gowden, a jury is not only confined to fact-finding. There are often situations when a jury is required to make legal determinations, to apply the law to facts. And the, the, the considerations that prevail in according a mixed question to a jury as opposed to a judge um, in the negligence situation are different than the, the kinds of considerations that one must consider in allocating between the trial judge and the appellate judge in a certain circumstance. Well, in, 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 instrumentally, uh, Ms. O'Sullivan, uh, how, uh, supposing one were to draft a statute to deal with this, this kind of subject directly rather than the general language, well, what is gained when all we're talking about is the, uh, what would a reasonable person think by pulling all the, car, all the power into the federal courts to make that final determination? I mean, there's nothing peculiarly federal about the determination of what is a reasonable person. State courts make that sort of determination every day, as Justice O'Connor has suggested. Yes, Your Honor. They make that determination with respect to negligence and other state law issues. They're not making that determination with respect to a very important threshold issue regarding um, federal constitutional procedure. Well, you federal constitutional procedure? You're saying Miranda is constitutional? Uh, Your Honor, I'm saying that Miranda is necessary to safeguard an essential Fifth Amendment trial, trial right, as the Court found in Withrow. While the Miranda standard may itself not be constitutional, it is at least quasi-constitutional because of its relationship to the Fifth Amendment trial. Well, what does quasi-constitutional mean? Your Honor. Or maybe you should ask us. <laughs> um, uh, Your Honor, I think that the, the, the importance of the Miranda right in, in terms of uh, it's, it's constitutional or quasi-constitutional status clearly distinguishes it from the negligence situation. Um, is, is there something unusual about the mixed-fact law question involving a reasonable person standard? Um, in in the, the run-of-the-mill mixed-fact and law question that goes to a jury, uh, the judge instructs the jury on the content of the law. In reasonable person kind of cases, uh, the, the judge doesn't. The judge simply says, uh, you know, would a reasonable person feel this way? And in effect, uh, the, the practice, I think, throughout the United States is that the reasonable person is for the, for the jury to determine. There is, it's, it's, a, it's a case in which the jury gives the content to the law. Does, does that argue for, I know you would still have the argument saying, well, it should still be a federal reasonable person, and therefore federal courts are to review. But that does put the reasonable person kind of mixed law or fact question in, a, in sort of a different status from the usual mixed question, doesn't it? Yes, Your Honor. In a, in a negligence a state court case, when they're called upon to say what is a reasonable man, they're not looking at who's the average Joe Blow. They're looking at what is re- what should the rule of law be in these circumstances? Given well, they're, the they're doing standards. it, but does the do, do judges tell them that? The judge simply says, "Is it reasonable or not?" And, and you're the judges of what is reasonable, right. so they figure out what the what the reasonable is distinct from the average person. Their object is to figure out, given community standards, what what is reasonable in the circumstance. In the so federal- that would be a at least that would be one reason for holding this to be an unreviewable question of fact. 
uh, or classifying it as such, not because there isn't an element of law there, but because that element of law is really left to the jury to, to, to supply the content of. And then you would come back, I take it, to your second argument and say, if you're going to keep control of Miranda, you've got to make sure that, that this jury construct is at least a federal one, and so you, for that reason, you federal court still ought to review it. But there would be an argument for saying no judicial review. Your Honor, I, I would disagree with that, respectfully. What the jury is applying in a negligent situation is community standards. What a federal judge in a Miranda context is required to apply in assessing reasonableness in a certain circumstance are the, the Fifth Amendment values underlying Miranda. That is something that he or she is particularly well qualified to do. Well, what Fifth Amendment values are involved in determining whether or not a reasonable person would have thought he was free to leave? Your Honor, the, what the Court has looked to in Berkmer, Mathis, and a number of other cases cited in our brief is whether the circumstances constitute a sufficient threat to a defendant's or a suspect's free exercise of their Fifth Amendment rights so as to require that Miranda warnings be provided. Well, no, I don't believe that's an accurate statement of our definitions of custody, which is admittedly only a prong of the Miranda test. But it simply is a reasonable person, would a reasonable person have felt free to leave the site of the interrogation? My point, Your Honor, is in interpreting what a reasonable person would think. The Court is essentially saying what, looking at the values underlying Miranda that I've, I've stated and determining what the rules should be given those, given those values. It's not simply looking to a factual determination of whether he was handcuffed to a table. I, I, I think you're wrong, Ms. O'Sullivan, and I, you certainly can disagree with me in suggesting that all of our cases say that it's some kind of super sophisticated inquiry based on Fifth Amendment value. I, I, I can certainly think of cases which have simply repeated the phrase, did the defendant, did the defendant feel free to leave? Would a person in the defendant's position have felt free to leave without going through all the other mumbo-jumbo? Your Honor, there are cases where the Court was much more terse in its explanation for its holding, such as perhaps Mathias and Beeler. But there are definitely cases, Your Honor, such as Berkmer being the prime example, where the Court said, we're not going to rely on a talismanic recitation of the definition of Miranda custody. We're going to look beyond that to see whether the concerns implicated in or the concerns that drove the Miranda Court are implicated in a given context. But the Berkmer was decided considerably before the case a couple years ago that said the test is that of a reasonable person, that one of California, from California. The Stansbury case, Your Honor. Yeah, that's right. The Stansbury case, though, made clear, Your Honor, that that case was designed in that case, the Court felt that it was simply reiterating a rule that it felt that everybody would have known by now, and that its preceding cases had established a reasonable person standard from the beginning. So I believe, Your Honor, that the reasonable person standard certainly was in place at least by the point of Berkmer. Justice Souter, my second response to your suggestion is this, is that when we're looking at the policies that determine whether something should be, whether a mixed question should be allocated, say, to what is primarily denominated as the fact finder or to an appellate court, we can talk about those policies, but I submit that that determination has already been made by Congress and this Court. This Court has made very clear that mixed questions, 
That is, in Townsend's words, the application of law to fact or the determination of the legal significance of the facts as found is a, is a question that is reserved for plenary review in the Federal Court. That determination has been made. In all cases or only in some cases? For example, in FELA cases, the reasonable In, in, in uh, habeas cases, Your Honor, under 2254D and 2254 generally. I take it you recognize that in some cases, reasonableness is for the trier, whether judge or jury, subject to clearly erroneous. But in other cases, reasonableness requires policing by an appellate form. That's correct, Your Honor. And the standard by which we can distinguish the one from the other is that in the second category, what is the need for special policing? Is it, is it what, some way we can tell? Well, we can tolerate a lot of um, inconsistency even with ju- different juries coming out differently unreasonable. Mm-hmm. But why can't we tolerate the same uncertainty about in custody? So one group would find not in custody, another would find in custody. They're both reasonable, and so appellate court would leave them alone. What's the difference? Your Honor, in, in the negligence context, again, we're asking the community to decide, looking backward, whether certain conduct should be sanctioned, whether somebody should be made liable for that conduct based on community standards. We're not asking that, that those standards be imposed nationwide. A jury in Illinois, we're encouraging a jury in Illinois to apply a different standard than a jury in Maine. Um, by contrast, in this situation, what we have is we have a federal quasi-constitutional standard. We are asking courts to not only define what that standard means by applying that con- the standard in the context of each particular case, but we are also asking the appellate courts to define a uniform or at least consistent um, body of law regarding the meaning of that standard. It's particularly important because in this context, just as in the Fourth Amendment context, we're asking law enforcement to conform their conduct to those rules. Well, are you suggesting, Ms. O'Sullivan, that uh, a finder of fact or a determination of a determiner of this question, say in New York City, would reach the exact same conclusion that a determiner of this fact in Alaska? I mean, how about, you know, don't fence me in. <laughs> maybe, maybe people in the West may be less likely to feel free to leave or be more likely to free to leave than people in New York or or Los Angeles. Is it indeed a case in which the factual determination, given the facts in a particular case, courts all over the United States must reach the same result? I think that's why the court adopted an objective standard for custody, Your Honor. If the court were inclined to treat this as a question of fact that could differ with the jurisdiction, with the suspect's particular susceptibility or the police's particular conduct, could easily have implied it as objective. No, not not the suspect's, not the peculiar uh, characteristics of the suspect at all, but just what reasonable people in a community might feel about actions concerning an interrogation. Maybe a person in Alaska might have felt free to leave under these circumstances, and a person in New York might not have. Your Honor, the difficulty with having that kind of um, disparity would be twofold. Uh, First of all, it would result in a disparity among defendants, depending on whether they're arrested in California or New York, in the extent of, of 
protection afforded to them by Miranda, which should not be countenanced. Second, well, I, I don't know that that's right, Ms. O'Sullivan, because if, if the reasonable person test says, did, I feel, did a reasonable person feel free to leave, maybe people in New York just react differently than people in Alaska to the same set of circumstances. Of course, you might have a New Yorker arrested in Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) And then where would we be? (laughs) But I I suppose your answer might, would this be uh, a possible answer, that even even if, in fact, there are different uh, uh, geographically differing standards of, of feelings of freedom to leave, whether the feeling is sufficient enough for Miranda purposes uh, is still a federal question. So you would still want a federal court in Alaska or California or Boston or wherever it might be ultimately to pass on the appropriateness of or, or the satisfaction of the federal standard uh, even even if people feel differently about leaving in various parts of the country. That's correct, Your Honor. Yeah. If, that, if that is correct, there may be a Finish if you want. If you were going to add something, uh, I was going to add that I think that that's um, that basically yes, we want a uniform rule regarding what Miranda stands for in various parts of the country. In part because police officers in various parts of the country don't necessarily, um, or certainly federal agents, shouldn't have to conform their conduct to the the um, peculiar circumstances of say New Jersey. But Mr. Solomon, haven't you? That's a point you can't go back to. We're dealing with a reasonable person, totality of the circumstances standard. Mm -hmm. What you just said sounds like the police, the primary addressee should be the police officer. The police officer should have clear marching instructions. When do I have to give Miranda and when do I don't? But now we have to make that determination after the fact. Your Honor, it's often difficult in a totality of the circumstances test to give clear guidance. However, this is one situation where... To the extent the courts are able to come up with that guidance, it must be uniform guidance across the country, is my point. I, I recognize that it's a totality of the circumstance test. Um, but by applying the standard in various contexts, the courts of appeals and this court provide guidance for police officers. Well, I don't – well, no, go ahead. Um, what's actually bothering me very much you're touching on, and I don't know how this – would come out, but it, uh, you're, I think you're quite right. Facts are normally historically based, mm-hmm. but not totally. If I look at that cloth up there, I don't know if that's damask or not. I've never known what damask meant. It's solely a question of applying a label to that cloth, and I guess we'd call in a cloth expert, but not a lawyer. So sometimes we don't call in lawyers to apply words in statutes to historical situations. That's correct, Your Honor. And when we don't, we still call them factual matters. And so I take it here, the question really is applying these words in this statute in custody to a given historical set of facts. Are we calling upon legal skills, in which case it's a legal matter, or are we calling upon psychiatric skills, ordinary person skills, in which case it's still a factual matter? And when I say that to myself, and you seem to agree with that, Mm -hmm. but then I'm forced to the answer, it all depends. It depends on the case. Sometimes in a case, what's really at issue is the law in applying this word in custody. Uh, Sometimes, because uh, everybody agrees what we'd say as ordinary people, but given Miranda, blah, 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 how does it apply? And very often, it doesn't call for legal skills. It applies for perfectly ordinary human skills. So if we both think that, 
What am I to do? Well, Your Honor, in, I think the, the statute, as I've tried to point out before, I think the statute decides it for you. But I mean, if, I all right, if you look at the statute, to add that, it says factual matters are to go to the fact finder. Fine. And I'd say very often, for the reasons that the Chief just articulated, and so very often, all that we're interested in here is whether an ordinary human being, whether he's a judge or not, would say that a reasonable person would feel confined. An answer that may vary from Alaska to Hawaii. But sometimes we're interested in uniquely legal aspects of it, how those words fit. So how did it decide here? Your Honor, I think the decision has been made for the Court how to deal with that um that particular circumstance. I think the Court's precedents make clear that when you have the application of a legal standard to the facts, that's actually a, a legal standard, not a... Not you always have. You always have. Yes, Look, Your Honor. one case where that isn't so is where the legal standard happened to be competency to stand trial, mm -hmm. because there the label competency is normally, but not 100 percent, a matter of psychiatric interpretation. So we'd call in psychiatrists, like the Damask expert, not lawyers. But sometimes you'd want to call in lawyers, even there. I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm yeah. saying I'm genuinely puzzled by this problem. And, I think and in, in the custody context, Your Honor, it's not, it's not, obviously the court's cases say that this is not always easy. But to the extent you can make it easy, the courts have done so. If we made it easy here, you'd say normally. The words in custody don't call for legal interpretations. Normally, they call for human judgments about how people reasonably behave. Your Honor, I would, I would disagree with you um, completely on that question, um, because the question of whether somebody, whether a reasonable person, um, what a reasonable person would have believed under this circumstance, is simply not a historical question, a, a fact. It's not no, It's not, but it's applying a label to a set of historical right. facts, an activity in which non-lawyers, like, engage every day of the week, and when non-lawyers do engage in it, we call that a factual question, mm -hmm. too. Yes. And now that's, that's at that, that point that I need help. Well, it's my belief, Your Honor, that when you're resolving the reasonable person test in the Miranda context, in most cases what you're doing is looking back to Miranda and you're saying, does this make sense in the circumstances? What should the law be? You're applying a legal judgment based on, primarily on Fifth Amendment values, not based on factual circumstances. Mr. Solomon, would the same go for, say, the bus search cases? Would we engage in the same reasoning under the test that Justice O'Connor announced in the Bostic case, mm -hmm. that also would a reasonable person feel free to leave? Is that also the kind of question that under 2254 would get de novo review? Your Honor, um, in the Fourth Amendment context, I think Stone v. Powell would prevent the Court from reaching the treatment of these issues for purposes of Section 22. How about let's put it on direct review? Yes, Your Honor. We contend, obviously, that, that the, the, the treatment of the issue should be the same on direct or on habeas review. In the Fourth Amendment context, Your Honor, the Court has consistently treated um, the question of whether someone has been seized for Fourth Amendment purposes, the question whether there was reasonable suspicion for that seizure, the question whether that seizure, um, the permissible stop of a, uh, uh, sorry, the permissible extent of a Terry stop has been exceeded, has treated all those questions de novo. 
I think in that circumstance, the Court recognized that this is fundamentally a legal judgment that we're being required to make. And moreover, it's a legal judgment that should warrant uh, final determination by appellate courts for two reasons. First, you want to ensure that the judgment is correct that um, you're, you've got a developing standard. The standard develops. It attains its meaning, these general standards as to what constitutes custody. Don't have, don't tell the police this is a situation where we have custody and that isn't. They only attain their meaning by application. And in the Fourth Amendment context, the allocation of final responsibility to appellate courts is important because it allows the court to control the development of this standard to ensure that the standard is, is consistent with its Fourth Amendment values and with the, the concerns that drive the Court in the Fourth Amendment. Mr. And Mr. second, again, how you distinguish the, what seemed to me a, a lot of cases where we've, uh, uh, we've um, held that things that you would consider to be uh, legal determinations or factual determinations, such as uh, competency to waive uh, post-conviction relief, Mm-hmm. How, 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 how come that uh, is uh, Your Honor, differently from what you urge us to do here? Your Honor, in, in those circumstances, here in, in this context, what you have is a two-part inquiry. The, the trial court will determine the historical facts surrounding the interrogation and will then apply the Miranda custody standard to those facts. The first step in the inquiry is subject to 2254D's presumption. When one applies the legal standard to those facts, there is a legal standard to be applied. We're making a legal value judgment. But that's the case in all of these things. Uh, um, um, competency to waive post-conviction relief, they're going to be facts. Your Honor. The, the person was banging his head against the cell wall, or he wasn't banging his head against the cell wall. You know, Your Honor, he thought he was Napoleon, or he, did, he didn't think he was Napoleon. These are all going to be issues. Of, they're always going to be issues of fact. In they're going to be issues of fact. Um, but, Your Honor, the, the, the critical inquiry is there is nothing but a question of fact. This, the court's definition of what constitutes juror bias, the legal standard, collapses into nothing more than a question of subjective fact. What was in this person's state of mind? In that circumstance, there is no legal standard to be applied. Section 2254D's presumption, as applied to that determinative fact, well, I can say the same thing here. Did the person, you know, uh, would, would a reasonable person feel free to leave? Your Honor, in the, in the custody cases, the Court has refused to reduce Miranda custody to no a question of fact, to uh, a subjective inquiry into a particular person's state of mind, or to um, a question of historical fact. The court has refused to adopt bright-line rules as to when one factual circumstance exists or doesn't exist. Rather, the court has required a reasonable person inquiry on the totality of the circumstances. That is a quintessentially legal inquiry. I'm sorry, Justice Breyer. I was just saying you just fell off the wagon a little bit because because the other other thing that is factual, I take it, is the application of the label to the historical facts under circumstances where that application calls for non-legal skills. You're following that, right? It's a little technical, I just said. Yes, I I think we're having the same discussion that we had before. That's what I think is at issue here. Yes. And, and the reason that you said that here it calls for legal skills rather than non-legal skills, the question of how reasonable people might feel, is? Is that it is ultimately a value judgment made in light of Fifth Amendment. You would say all, all objective standards are, you're saying all of the cases where we treat them as facts, the standard is a subjective one, purely subjective one? Yes, Your Honor. And where the Although standard- I don't think every subjective test necessarily 
needs to be a factual inquiry. In cases where you have a hybrid inquiry like Miller with a voluntariness inquiry, the Court has treated that as a question of law. If I may reserve the balance of my time, Your Honor. Well, Ms. O'Sullivan. Uh, Ms. Arrow, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. An Alaska State trial judge found that Petitioner Carl Thompson was not in custody for Miranda purposes when he voluntarily appeared at the Fairbanks Trooper Station and voluntarily answered questions posed by two Alaska State Troopers. The Ninth Circuit accorded the State Court's determination on the custody issue the presumption of correctness and concluded that it found fair support in the record. Three sound policy reasons support the Ninth Circuit's decision to accord the presumption of correctness to the Miranda custody determination. First, the custody determination is extremely fact-bound, so the trial court is in the better position to decide the issue. Well, it's always fact-bound, but the, the, the difficulty of resolution is going to vary. I mean, sometimes, uh, let's say, when the only issue was uh, was the defendant walking in and out of the interrogation room uh, giving press interviews in the meantime? That's a simple question of fact, and if that's what the issue of custody turns on, uh, then you really can say there wasn't any legal issue in this determination. It was just a purely factual one. But then you have cases like this in which it may be very, very close. And at that point, it's hard to articulate a set of facts uh, which determines the, the, the answer. And at that point, there's kind of a, a, a point at which the instinctive legal judgment has to be what, what finally resolves the issue. So that in a case like this, uh, the, the factual element, the difficulty of the factual element, in fact, uh, is, is not great, but the difficulty of the legal element is great. So in a case like this, isn't it fair to say, well, this isn't the kind of fact-bound case that we say we don't want to be wasting legal time on or need to waste legal time on? This is the type of fa- application of law to the facts that we don't want to be wasting appellate well, then you are, in effect, saying that the, that the Miranda standard is, is going to vary uh, by, by virtue of, of fact determination uh, uh, without review. No, I don't Any, think... I mean, we, you're, you're, in effect, I think, saying we want Miranda juries to have the same kind of policy, uh, 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 the same kind of policy autonomy that we want automobile negligence juries to have, and we don't want that, do we? No, but I'm not suggesting that the state court's findings are unreviewable at any level. They are still reviewable at the standard level. Well, the Miranda Miranda question, the question of in custody, isn't ordinarily submitted to a jury anyway, is it? Isn't it determined in a preliminary motion by the judge? It is determined by a judge, but the fact that it's determined by a judge doesn't take it out of out of the, or doesn't change the factual nature of it. The fact that a, a defendant may waive his constitutional right to a jury trial and proceed to a bench trial, and a judge may make the ultimate determination of guilt, that determination is entitled to no less deference than a jury verdict would be simply because a judge had made it. I would submit that a lot of the factors involved in the uh, Miranda custody de- determination. It involves the demeanor of the witnesses who testify in front of the trial judge. 
And, it inv- and that demeanor and inflection and the tone of voice and the various factual findings, and it's what's the weight and the reasonable inferences that one draws from that evidence and those facts that really have a very factual nature and are very dependent on the demeanor and credibility of the witnesses, something that you can't find from a written decision by a trial court. Trial court may be able to articulate particular facts that the trial judge relied upon in making the custody determination, but those decisions often don't reflect exactly how much weight that trial judge gave to each of those types of, fi- each of, those types of facts. If and we accept that argument, that this is a classic fact determination in which we defer to the first instance decision maker, whether judge or jury, then the Alaska Court of Appeals did something extra that it didn't need to do, isn't that so? Because the Alaska Court of Second Instance did give this de novo review, did it not? I think it's unclear from the the, uh, Court of Appeals' opinion exactly what standard of review it did apply. It did not refer to any standard of review. Um, It did make clear in subsequent cases, though, that in Alaska it will apply the clearly erroneous or deferential standard of review to trial court determinations of custody. Oh, so you say that the Alaska court, so nobody has ever given this, nobody would ever give this de novo review, not at the state appellate level and... Not, not the factual determination, the, the determination of whether or not well, the, the legal the standard... To, the, the answer to the question, was this person in custody? I had thought, but you're correcting me that I was wrong, that at least inside the state, the first appellate review is de, de novo. At, at the time Thompson's case was decided, it was unclear. It is now clearly erroneous. And that is... So what you're arguing, then, is there should never be, there never need be uh, a de novo review, that the first instance decision-maker decides the question, anybody else, it's a clearly erroneous. That's correct. I would be, I'm basically arguing for the same standard and deference that you would accord a trial court, I mean, excuse me, a trial jury's determination. Why, why should it matter what the state does with it? I mean, and all of these policy considerations are very interesting, but we're dealing with a federal statute, and it seems to me it's, it's, it's just a matter of, of what, the, what the, the, the terms in the federal statute mean. Perhaps there's some uh, confusion about the state may may for purposes of its internal uh, uh, appeals choose to treat the uh, treat the matter differently from what the federal statute requires uh, us to consider them as. Isn't that right? That is correct. However, uh, as I stated before, the fact that that this presum- that this factual issue or de- application of, of the Miranda custody definition to the facts of a particular case can be treated as a factual issue and subject to the presumption of correctness. The legal standard or the legal principles underlying Miranda and the definition of what Miranda custody is and what factors are relevant or irrelevant can still be ascertained by a, a, by an, a federal court or by an appellate court in the, in the state of Alaska, and that is because you're dealing with the governing standard. The, on habeas review, the, the Thompson Court, the Ninth Circuit, could have said the Alaska State Trial Court judge did not apply the correct legal standard. What the, he relied on erroneous factors. 
he didn't consider all of the facts, or he applied in, in which would be a, if there was no fair support in the record, arguably. There are ways that you can achieve that uniformity and that appellate review and that federal review of what Miranda intends to protect without reviewing every single, you know, factual application. Okay, but there's, there's a different problem, which I don't think you do touch on in, in your catalog, and that is the problem that arises from the fact that um, what is a sufficient sense of freedom to leave, which is the, the consideration that drives the application of Miranda, is difficult to articulate. Uh, and it cannot be articulated. It isn't articulated simply by saying, well, it's what a reasonable person would feel. That just passes the buck to whoever is going to determine what the reasonable person does feel. Uh, and in, in, those, in, in instances like that where it is very difficult to articulate the standard, ultimately the only way you can show what it means is by pointing to examples that you yourself supply and, says, and you say, this is it and that isn't. In this case, the person was free to leave. In that case, it wasn't. Um, and when you have standards that require that kind of nuance, if you will, it seems to me that the, that the body that is setting the law has got to keep control uh, of the ultimate application, which it doesn't do on a clearly erroneous standard, because otherwise it's not going to be able to tell people what the standard is. And isn't that a reason for saying that this is a mixed question that the court really does have to review? and therefore under the statute should be construed as subject to review. The, the terms freedom to leave, I, I don't think, have that uniquely legal dimension that, the say, the voluntariness in why, why not? Why is freedom to leave somehow less subtle uh, than, than uh, true willingness to speak? Well, for one reason, we're dealing with a different um, right we're dealing with a non-fundamental right. Well, in Miranda. We're, in Miranda, we're talking about a how do you guarantee the constitutional value rule as opposed to a, an, an absolute first instance constitutional value rule. But we're still talking about standards of voluntariness. Uh, and I don't know why the, the, the issue of voluntariness is somehow less subtle in the Miranda context than it is uh, in, the, in the confession or the admission context. Maybe it is, but I don't understand why. Well, it is in the sense that it does not have the same constitutional stature as No, no. We're talking about the we're, — we're saying there is a subtlety of fact here. How much is enough? And I thought you were — maybe I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying, well, it's easier to say how much is enough in Miranda than it is to say how much is enough uh, on voluntariness of confession. Uh, and how much is enough doesn't matter whether it's a primary constitutional rule or a secondary constitutional rule. The concept, how much is enough, how free is free, is the same. Why is it more subtle in the confession context than it is in the Miranda context? I, I would go back to the interest we are trying to protect. We're not only looking at I think if you look at Miller v. Fenton, the decision whether to affix a particular label to an issue doesn't depend solely on 
whether we classify, whether we think an issue is more legal or more factual in nature. But we also look to policy considerations. And the, I think the policy considerations here, when you're looking at a non-fundamental right involving, which is basically a definition that is, is clearly um, one that is a reasonable person's well, Do we have that much freedom under the statute? Yes. Why, why do we look to policy concerns? I mean, it's all very interesting, these policies. We have a statute that says that a determination after a hearing on the merits of a factual issue shall be given effect by the, by the federal court. On the merits of a factual issue. That's a statute passed after a decision of ours in which we said, by issues of fact, we mean to refer to what are termed basic, primary, or historical facts. Facts in the sense of a recital of external events and the credibility of the narratives. That's, that's an opinion by Justice Frankfurter that was on the books when this statute was enacted. Why shouldn't we just take the statute to be incorporating a, a term of art that we have defined in our opinions? But subsequently, the Court has made clear, for example, in Wainwright versus Witt, that there are a lot of questions that can be — to which the fixed — or, excuse me, the mixed question of law and fact can be — that label can be attached, and yet you're going to treat it as a factual issue in the habeas context under the statute. I, I point, for example, the Wainwright versus Witt as is a, is a, an example. I mean, this Court said what, it's clear here that what the trial judge is doing is applying a legal standard, the legal standard of jury bias, the Witherton, Witherspoon, Adams standard, you know, to the question of juror bias here. And because it's a predominantly factual inquiry and because it is one... It's, it's totally factual, as, as, uh, as, as your colleague points out. Uh, it is a factual determination of whether the jury, juror was biased or not. And the, the position of the state of Alaska is that the question of Miranda custody is, like juror bias, a factual question. No, it, no. It's whether a reasonable, whatever this individual felt, would a reasonable person in this individual's position have felt free to leave? That's it's not a factual question. It's, it, it's a judgment, bring, you know, bringing down the reasonable person. But that in, in and of itself is a judgment. And it's a judgment that we entrust to reasonable laypersons every day in courtrooms across the nation. I, in fact, the jury in, in Mr. Thompson's case... That may well be, but applied. I'm working with this statute. I'm working with a statute that says an issue of fact. And we've been there issues of fact in our opinion. No. I mean, Frankfurter didn't, wasn't exhaustive in his list. I mean, there are dozens of cases where experts in trials decide factual matters about whether it's a patent or whether it's a this or whether it's carbon monoxide or whatever it is. And... Uh, that kind of a case is what's presented here. That doesn't mean you're right. But. And he wrote many years before this statute was adopted. That is correct. It's also, I think if we look at the, at the jury bias decision, uh, there were decisions by this court which referred to jury bias as a mixed question. And nevertheless, um, after the enactment of, of 2254D, this Court has subsequently, when called upon to address the issue in the habeas context, uh, treats it as a factual issue. When was this statute uh, passed? It was the passed in 1966, the same year Miranda was decided. The opinion decided. I read from was in 1963. Yes. 
But even if I — even if we assume that there are some cases in which the Court does have — there's some play in the joints here, and there are some places — the cases that are very close to call, we still come back to the problem of differentiating the — even the factual issue or articulating the factual issue of what is voluntariness in one context and what is voluntariness in another, which would make it very difficult, it seems to me, to distinguish this case from the voluntary confession case. But this Court has often treated the issue of voluntariness differently than the Miranda claims. Well, tell me why — tell me why, assuming we have the opportunity to do it, and I'm not at all sure that we have, but if we have the opportunity to do it, tell me why we should treat it differently here. Why is the one inquiry more subtle than the other? Because I think in term — under Miller v. Fenton, the Court considers policy determinations in affixing that label. There are policy considerations here and decisions by this Court which have held that Miranda is not the equivalent of voluntariness and treated as such. Well, yeah, but I'm not sure that that gets you where you want to go, because that is simply, it seems to me, a premise for the argument that this Court better keep control, our Federal courts better keep control, of just where to draw that line. The Federal courts can keep control of the definition of Miranda, the legal standard, by determining whether or not State courts apply the correct legal standard and defining what the standard is. They do not need to be controlled. No, but we started — the premise of my question was that it's very difficult to define the standard in so many words because it's very difficult to describe the degree of voluntariness upon which it depends. And if we're going to have merely clearly erroneous review, that's going to leave an extremely large area of factual discretion in the State courts. And I — my suggestion was that assuming we have a choice, that we probably better not leave that great degree of discretion, because if we do, we basically have lost control of Miranda, and it's going to be — it's going to vary significantly from State to State. I would submit that you would not lose control of Miranda. You still decide the guiding legal principles in that. What we're dealing with here is that it's in the — Well, I think we're just not engaging in the same argument, because I'm starting with the premise that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to articulate those premises without from time to time picking a few examples out and saying, this is it, that isn't. And you, in effect, are saying, no, you don't have to go through that. You can state it enough. And I think maybe that's — our disagreement is maybe unbridgeable there. I'm saying we can only do it one way, and you are saying, oh, you could do it another way. Isn't that where you and I are disagreeing here? I believe so. Yeah. It seems to me, counsel, that when you were suggesting that fundamental constitutional rights are subject to de novo review in the courts or some plenary review, that there was an implicit admission or an implicit premise that control by the courts is better maintained that way, and that it is more important to have control. And it seems to me that that is what Justice Souter is suggesting should apply in Miranda cases, even if we don't classify that as a fundamental right. I would — I don't think it rises to the same level of voluntariness or some of the other issues that the Court has to know. Well, assistance of counsel is another one where there would be de novo review. Is that 
Right. That's correct. So there are some things that trigger de novo review, voluntariness, ineffective assistance of counsel, other things that don't. And you're saying Miranda falls on the side with jury bias and not on the side with voluntariness or ineffective assistance. <laughs> Why? If the object is that Miranda is not just some words that are spoken sometimes, but words that must be spoken at a certain time, doesn't the federal court need to have control over what that time is? The federal court, though, can do that by articulating the standard. The federal courts, by having fact-bound applications... Well, what is the standard other than in custody? Who fleshes out what in custody means by saying certain circumstances are not in custody? Certain circumstances are. And how can the court do that job without passing, get, getting a body of cases that it can review and then uh, narrowing the, uh, the range of choice that the police will have? The court has already done that in Miranda cases in terms of defining, defining what factors are relevant and what factors are irrelevant to the custody de determination. If you have a, a, a plethora of decisions simply setting out facts and saying, yes, this is custody, no, this isn't, it's not going to be particularly helpful to the trial courts because, you know, all the, the myriad of factual situations in the Miranda context is varied. And, the, it's what weight to give particular facts is going to depend on the particular facts of the case, which is very dependent on the demeanor and the credibility of the witnesses. For example, in this case, Mr. Thompson was told, I think, seven or eight times that he was not under arrest. If that fact appears in a decision, the, how helpful is that going to be to another trial judge in, in Boston or Florida or wherever in determining whether or not a person, you know, taken into custody in their jurisdiction was, was under arrest or, or was entitled to Miranda warnings or not, if they were only advised two times that they were not under arrest and they were free to leave. I mean, it's very hard to discern principles from just application of the facts. You can set out the general factors in that in the test, in the definition, in, in clarifying and honing the definition, but you don't, you don't achieve that uniformity or that those clarification of guiding principles in that in fact-bound um, de novo review. I mean, this is a fact-bound determination. And you won't achieve that uniformity. I thought it's, that was the way the law generally built. It's, it, it says this case falls on that side and that case falls on the other side and we get enough of the cases, then we can state some broader guiding principle. I thought that's the traditional way that our system operates, and certainly the co in common law interpretation, even in the interpretation of statutes. In terms of this type of determination, in terms of the Miranda custody determination, these very fact-bound determinations, this court in Cooter and Gell versus Hartmax Corporation you know, said fact-bound de determinations are simply not, you know, will not achieve uniformity through appellate review, de novo, or otherwise. I mean, certain fact-bound determinations, there's going to be some variance, um, simply because, you know, in very, very close cases, though the, whether it tips in 
in favor of custody or not in custody for Miranda purposes, a lot of that's going to turn on the demeanor and credibility of the witnesses that the appellate court just doesn't have access to on the record. Then why don't we go back and reconsider the question whether the voluntariness of a confession should be subject uh, to, to review uh, without deference? Well, you know, we got that wrong, didn't we, on your explanation? Because there's no, as I understand it, there's no reason we can't state the legal rule clearly and leave it to the other courts to apply. We got it wrong, didn't we? You need not decide that. No, but I mean, if we're going to be consistent, if we're, if we're going to take a step here, we ought to know what direction we're going in. And I think we're going in the direction of saying we were wrong about confessions. You can take the step that I'm asking you to take without overruling Miller v. Fenton. Well, we but don't have to you... say anything about it, but we're going to set Miller and Fenton up to be overruled, aren't we? Not necessarily. Why? You have the case of Withrow versus Williams, which talks about um, the habeas context and, and Miranda claims. And this court determined that Miranda is, you know, is a prophylactic rule, and, but the prophylactic nature of the rule is not on all fours with MAP. And so we're, going, it, we're not going to bar those claims from federal review entirely. But, we also, but the court also recognized that they're not on the same footing as voluntariness claims. So what you've yeah, done why is, is that put a distinction, Miranda. Why is that a distinction under the statute? But what you've done here is put No, Miranda. but why is that a distinction under the statute? The statute doesn't say anything about first-level constitutional claims, second-level constitutional claims. We, we don't have that but, kind of policy freedom under the statute. Under Miller v. Fenton, the court said that a lot of these determinations of what what should be deemed a factual issue under the statute? The statute doesn't say anything about first-level constitutional claims, second-level constitutional claims. We, we don't have that but, kind of policy freedom under the statute. Under Miller v. Fenton, the Court said that a lot of these determinations of what, what should be deemed a factual issue under the statute do involve policy considerations. And this policy well, they, they, they probably involve the kind of policy considerations that I was talking about a moment ago, that you, you can't keep control of the statute for, or the standard, for example, if you don't review it uh, with, uh, in an ab with an absence of deference. But do you think Miller and Fenton was saying uh, we've got a free hand uh, to decide what issues of fact are merely important enough? I think you have the discretion to determine what is a factual issue. And in determining or in affixing the factual issue label, you can look at various policy considerations. What you did in Winthrop v. Williams is you put Miranda sort of in a middle ground. Okay. May, may I — would it be fair then to summarize by saying that although the kind of analysis may be the same in each case, Miranda and confession, that that is we'll, — we'll simply say candidly that is not what determines it. Uh, and what determines it is the importance of the constitutional issue uh, and, and its character as a — we'll call it a first-tier constitutional issue as opposed to a second-tier constitutional issue. That is the basis upon which we would distinguish them in your yes. view? That's what Miller v. Fenton said. It said that you don't look at, a, at an issue and basically determine — decide what label to affix by deciding that this is a more legal issue or a more factual issue, and that you can also look at policy considerations, that so that would, often we, determines okay. the scope of review. Okay. And this Court has put Miranda in the middle 
of, of Fourth Amendment claims involving search and seizure and voluntariness claims involving the Fourteenth Amendment. And all you need to do is take one little step to say we're going to take a middle ground, which is appropriately <laughs> reflected by the presumption of correctness, and accord that presumption of correctness to the trial court's finding of fact. There's a good statement, actually, in an opinion I think that Nor Norris wrote. I don't know if you saw it, McConey, where he, he describes it in this way, trying to apply this label. Uh, he says, uh, the reason it's a legal question as far as because its resolution requires us to consider abstract legal doctrines to weigh underlying policy considerations and to balance competing legal interests. Now, in deciding whether a person is in custody, are the activities I just read quite frequently involved? I, I don't think the last two are frequently involved. What is, what is primarily involved is, is an application of a reasonable person standard to a set of facts, which juries and lay people are able to, to do, and we, we accord very great deference to those determinations. And to suggest that Judge Hodges, because he put on a black robe and sat in a different place in the courtroom, somehow lost his ability to do that, which is, I mean, is, is simply, um, you know, I mean, is to give, uh, not give Judge Hodges much credit um, in terms of applying you know, what, what 12 ordinary uh, citizens of Alaska did. So I think it's, it's basically, a, it's, it's applying a definition to a set of facts. It doesn't involve a lot of legal principles, and that except to the fact, except to the extent that the judge looks at the factors which this court has told it to look at, and it doesn't look at the factors this court says is irrelevant. There's no further questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Hora. Uh, Ms. O'Sullivan, you have two minutes remaining. Your Honor, unless the Court has any further questions, um, respondent has nothing, petitioner has nothing further. Very well. The case is submitted. Thank you.